Welcome to episode 28 of Political OD, uh, coming quite soon after the previous one, because there's quite a bit to catch up on in that short time. I thought we'd uh, run through now rather than leave it for another uh, week or two. We ended our last one looking at Sir Keir Stammer. I think it would be right to start this one with Boris speaking at the Conservative Party conference. Uh, whereas all we seem to be able to remember about Sir Keir's speech was that he was one and a half hours making it. Um, Boris had sense to keep it short, uh, but I don't think there was any great substance in either speech at the end of the day, was there all? No, not really. And uh, I mean, Boris managed to get through an immense amount of material in the time that he had because he seemed to be, um, he, he was just ripping through it. He was going so quickly. It was um, almost unbelievable. But no, he gave the, the Conservative faithful exactly what they expect from a from a Boris speech. There was lots of uh, witticisms, lots of uh, digs at Keir Starmer, lots of jokes and um, very little in the way of policy, really. Largely policy at Conservative Party conference anyway is really substantially talked about in the main speeches of ministers. I mean, you might get the odd bit of policy announced. The Conservative Party conference, the action is entirely on the fringe. Um, and there was quite a lot of policy debate on housing and, and a lot of economic stuff going on in the fringes as well this year. Well, I suppose that's where the battle for the heart of conservatism is at the moment, because, um, you know, Boris has brought in this uh, kind of quite high spending um, version of conservatism that he, uh, he, he was an economic liberal, um, you know, to all intents and purposes previously. But whether it's the pandemic or, you know, just his idea of levelling up and um, the red wall seats and all of that, the sort of economically liberal side of, of conservatism kind of feels as if it's been frozen out to an extent. So there's that intellectual battle going on in the, at the fringes of the conference. To that extent, there was a bit of a reset at the conference in that it was a fairly uh, well-managed conference in that it delivered what was expected to deliver. There were no surprises at the conference in it to any great extent. You know, Boris came out and gave what everybody expected Boris to say. Um, and the fringes really did, as you say, had that battle of ideas burning along in the background, um, which is uh, going to be interesting as we come out of COVID, because I think that has largely quelled a lot of debate uh, behind the scenes. Yeah, and I mean, I suppose we came out of the Labour Party conference talking about divisions in Labour and whether Starmer was the man to, to lead that party and whether he could keep his uh, kind of fiery left wing under control. There wasn't really the same um, sense of, of division out of the Conservative Party conference, you know, but possibly predictably so, because despite the fact that they've been in power, you know, off and on since, um, since 2010, or not off and on, but with, with the Liberal Democrats initially, there's not really any kind of sense of them struggling at the polls as yet. So mm -hmm. yes, we. I mean, I, I seem to remember in our very first episode of Political OD, we talked about the housing issue and, and Conservative yeah. Party Conference, and that's still bubbling along there. That's a massive issue, particularly in the mainland, where it's difficult for people to, to, to get homes as first-time buyers and everything else. But there was no, there wasn't any great scandalous news stories or anything no. like that. It was a, it was a relatively uneventful um, few days. Obviously, that that was followed in the, in the last week with uh, the Austria Unionist Party conference, which uh, 
no, no, no sign of policy there either. Uh, clearly, the Ulster Unionists this year getting in early, possibly on time. I, I, I've lost track of when Northern Ireland political conferences happen or don't happen. And frankly, I never watch them anyway. Uh, I, I tend to read the leader's speeches following just to see what was actually said uh, as delivered. That hasn't been put up yet, I think, on the Ulster Unionist website. So I, I, I still haven't seen the, the full text. But you know, again, it was about optics. It was about sending out some sort of message from the Austrian Unionist conference, I think, this year, uh, which was, um, oh, look, here we have some women. Oh, look, here we've got a young loyalist invited. Oh, look, uh, we've got uh, entertainment dancers, Mamie Fetridge. Aren't we decent people, nice people, the sort of people you would like to vote for? Uh, all very nice, um, but... The question about why would I actually vote for you is still left left hanging there in terms of why are you better in government than anyone else? Yeah, I missed the fact that May McFetridge was there, but um, Apparently. You've, you've enlightened me there, David. Yes, it was a bit of a policy-free zone. And I mean, I, I don't have any difficulty with the Ulster Unionists kind of redefining themselves to an extent and carving out... Um, carving out a sort of a different space in unionism because I think that unionism should uh, manage to you know appeal to people by diverse kind of attitudes and backgrounds and everything else but I mean just to say this is us and we're nice at some point you've got to move on from that and start to fill in the gaps in terms of policy in terms of what you would do differently um, if you were in government and as yet I sadly haven't really seen any sign of that no and i i struggle as you say there's probably really wills the students to succeed and then they kind of open their mouths and it, it sort of falls apart there, there was an interview on sunday morning at, uh, on the mark ruther show we we all kind of know the the sort of questioning line of these shows so there, there's no surprises there and i think there was an effort by the else units maybe behind the scenes maybe some i don't know who's giving uh, to be advice. There was clearly a, a set of answers created to the likely questions to come come forward, one of which obviously is, is on, on first ministership that was always likely to come up. And, and I just got very confused with some of the phrases that, that, that also hung around that, because on the one hand, Beatty was saying, I'm all right, well, I want to be first minister. Whether they've got enough candidates to be, to be the DUP or, or get enough votes to, to do that. Okay, that's hypothetical. So let, let, let's leave that to one side. But the other aspect of that show was, was this focus on we want to take it back to back to basics or back to the start of the Good Friday Agreement. So like pretend 2007 never happened and the DUP Sinn Féin carve up and, and that, which, okay, it runs against where we are. Uh, but okay, you want to do that. But the only way you're going to do that is if you create a situation whereby there is no government until you resolve those issues, which is basically what Sinn Féin has done year after year, you know, every time they create a crisis, manufacture a crisis, brainstorm it down, negotiate, get something more. That's, that's the Sinn Féin uh, uh, cycle uh, that we, we've lived through. You know, it doesn't matter if you bring down Storm on one issue, will come out of it uh, with a completely different one as they did 2017 to uh, uh, 20, 2020. Doug had this thing whereby he was saying, we need to get it back to basics. The only way you do that is not have government. So surely the answer on the first ministership uh, or taking a deputy to a Sinn Féin first minister is we wouldn't take, you know, 
if we were first minister or second, there'll be, there'll be no ministers at all until we resolve and hark back to the common cause of, of however many leaders ago it was with the SDLP when Mark Durkin was there, talking about the ugly scaffolding of Stormont. You, know, you can create a story around what you want to achieve um, and not get caught in the smaller issues of first or deputy first minister because another aspect of your policy suggests that's actually irrelevant because whoever is first uh, a deputy first minister minister under the current system it won't work which is also the Ulster Unis argument by saying we've got to get back to basics and have a government that works so it's just this muddle of ideas without creating a coherence that people can say I agree with that yeah I think that's a very fair point and I don't disagree with Doug Beattie at all that structural changes are needed at Storm in order to make it work better and in fact I would say that it doesn't work not only just because of the the uh, St Andrew's agreement but because of the sort of nature of power sharing itself and the fact that it um, encourages logjam that it brings out grievances particularly um, from nationalist parties and and all the rest of it so you know I, I'm not going to launch a, an argument against that but yes if, if you want these structural changes you have to propose a way of getting them he, he's not really doing that I mean is he just going to does he think everybody's going to sort of voluntarily enter into some kind of negotiations in order in order to achieve this uh, what's the incentive for Sinn Féin to enter into any such discussions zero incentive that there's no incentive it's, it's not going to happen um, so 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 the, the answer is you know we're going to go into an election there will be no government until we can sort out the the, the, the fundamentals here that, that's how you go in if, yeah. if you're being honest about it uh, in terms of what you want to set out to achieve and like I say you know and there's common cause there because it means that you take leadership on that issue because the TUV have been saying the same. Uh, I think, largely speaking, the DUP are happy but unhappy with the situation. Um, and as I say, the SDLP were, were perhaps one of the first to openly describe Stormont as uh, ugly scaffolding. So, you know, there are certainly areas that you could uh, find common cause with other parties. You could take leadership on that issue and say, we've got to sort that out. And this is what we want to set out to achieve. But instead, he's not really thought that through, I don't think, um, and allowed himself to get caught in an argument that he doesn't really need to have. Anyway, like I say it just this whole, um, uh, there just doesn't seem to be a, a coherence there. Um, and I don't want to hear anyone say, uh, oh, well, he's only just in the job. He's taken the job on, you know. And he likes to talk about the continuity of his best friends, you know, those other great failures in, in, in Aiken and Nesbitt. So, you know, I mean, if those are whispering in his ear, he should be reminded that those two were singularly um, failures in their leadership roles. And he keeps promoting Robin Swan, who also, who's apparently going to somehow uh, lead and resolve the deep structural issues of, uh, of the health department. Uh, when quite clearly he was given his hat out the door of the Austria Union's headquarters uh, because he couldn't do that for the UUP. Although maybe the health department might be an easier thing 
uh, to lead at the end of the day. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know about that. It's probably a toss-up, isn't it? But I mean, um, Robin Swan has been greatly fitted for his leadership during uh, COVID-19 and everything else, but he's not actually, although, although he's produced, you know, some sort of vague plans for reforming the health service, he hasn't uh, produced a, a comprehensive plan to put it in place the changes well, that, that that are necessary. As you wrote for the newsletter, the great advantage of Robin Swan is that he's got these plans already on the shelf. Doug really did not have any plans sitting on the shelf when he walked into the Australian leadership, but the Donaldson report is very specific and very ready. And, uh, I think from your own experience uh, of, of uh, breaking your wrist last weekend, uh, which you, you wrote about in the newsletter, um, you, you pointed out that uh, you know, quite clearly um, change can't happen too soon. Yeah, well, absolutely. And I mean, the thing that I emphasized was that individually, the staff are all brilliant and that they're, they're working to capacity and doing their best, but they're let down by a system that is just outdated and not really fit for purpose anymore. Well, I'm talking about planning, of course, uh, Lord Frost has his plan for dealing with the uh, protocol, which you know, we, we've seen progressively uh, unveiled. Uh, there was the commission paper. Uh, he has apparently sent detailed legislative proposals to the European Commission uh, to say this is what we're proposing because this solves all the issues that we're, we need to resolve. We're, we're slightly ahead because you've got a, a, another hospital appointment tomorrow. Uh, yeah. So we're, we're one day ahead. So we're, we're not going to be able to uh, talk about the detail of the European. But the D- Europeans, through uh, their Irish mouthpieces, uh, have basically been saying that this is very generous. So they're they're trying to talk it up, and it's all for the people of Northern Ireland. Thanks, guys. Um, you know, it, it's all about it's all about you. Um, but it just seems more sort of tinkering uh, to take away public relations disaster zones that arise from the protocol, rather than any serious attempt uh, to resolve underlying issues. Well, I think what we're getting this evening is actually um, just a speech from Maros Sefcovic. So. Uh, it's not really going to contain the detail. It's, going, right. to kind of, it's going to make us. It's going to make assertions about what the the EU are planning to do, and then I suppose we'll have to tease those out because he's going to publish his his plans tomorrow. As ever, I guess the devil will be in the detail because there's already you know a few things are beginning to to fall apart, like this claim that um, British goods will be fast tracked into Northern Ireland. That's only the case if they don't for instance, contain any components from other parts of the world. So, I mean, all of that is going to have to be... Well, given the number of chips in in in, in the, the vast array of products these days, every, every product with a chip is going to be still under control. But I suppose the most striking thing is that we were told repeatedly by the EU that there was going to be no renegotiation of the protocol, that that was absolutely... And that's, that's what we're in. I mean, the, 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 two, the two takes, I think, in terms of Frost's speech last night, which I thought was a very well-constructed speech. Obviously, there's the usual Europhiles uh, uh, who have basically said how awful it is. I mean, I think I, I think he put them absolutely mad last night on, on, on social media. Um, but I thought it was a very well-constructed speech. He took issues in terms of you know, where we are, what are the important things going forward in terms of relationships uh, between the EU and UK? I think that's very, very important, given that we are in a very uncertain world. Having, as, as he put it, the fifth large economy sitting on your doorstep uh, with one of the largest defence budgets in Europe, we need a good relationship. EU, Europe, we all need to work together to deal with some very big issues 
coming down the line. Um, and then at a more local level, obviously, in terms of protocol, in terms of some of those issues, I thought he also rightly gave considerable weight in the speech to the, con- the, the underlying constitutional issue of what Brexit was, but also, obviously, of the importance of the UK and the report importance of our own constitution and our own ter- territorial integrity. Well, that's right, because, I mean, it's very easy to get caught up in the detail of uh, the practicalities around trade and everything else. And of course, those are important. And those are the things that have been making um, businesses suffer and consumers suffer and and emptying our shelves and everything else. But uh, as unionists, our underlying problem with this is its constitutional effects. And a major aspect of that is the authority of, uh, of, of the European institutions over parts of Northern Ireland's economy and the hindrance that there is in terms of the UK internal market and Northern Ireland's access to it. So I thought he was very good in terms of putting that front and centre of his speech. And I mean, as you're, you're absolutely right as well, we get the, we, we see this from a Northern Irish perspective and, and rightly so. And I mean, it, it's, Northern Ireland that's being affected most gravely by this protocol. But it is also important uh, that the UK and the EU have a stable and and constructive relationship going forward. Basically, it's important for the Western alliance. It's important for stability in the region and everything else. So you can't go forward and have a constructive relationship if you have this that you're going to use as, a, as an excuse to, to poke the, the other partner in the eye all the time. And at the moment, that's, that's what we've got uh, with the protocol. And that, for both sides, um, has to be put right in order to, to mean less friction in the future. Yeah, I think part of that is, is perhaps we also need to look at Macron, the French president, jumping up and down uh, very excitedly about all sorts of stuff, really, uh, threatening Jersey the supply of electricity from uh, from France um, and and perhaps even stopping the connectors going into uh, the south of England. His biggest thing in the past few weeks has been about the French fishermen uh, not getting their licenses. Uh, it was interesting that when he tried to get other European capitals uh, to weigh in uh, alongside France um, uh, and chastise the British for being uh, very difficult and for uh, punishing France, um, I think the, the response to date has been about 10 European capitals coming back and saying, look, lads, sort it out. Um, they really, they're really not that interested in uh, French disputes with the UK. There is that bigger sense in, in Europe that you know, Brexit can't last forever. It was, a, it was a moment in time. It was an event that happened. Things need to get resolved uh, with the UK and we need to get things back on an even keel on a state's basis. And if the protocol is an impediment, then the protocol will have to get amended to really look at the bigger picture. Yeah, well, our little um, friend Jupiter over there in France, he, he does get rather excitable about things, doesn't he? And, and yes, he was trying to muster the, his fellow EU nation states um, on the pretext that uh, they were defending French fishermen and, and also implying that uh, Britain couldn't expect uh, a kind of constructive negotiation on the protocol while it was denying yeah. fishermen uh, that you know, why those two issues were connected in this head I, I don't know but um, it, it seems pretty clear that the rest of Europe isn't really as as uh, exercised on the on that issue as he is. 
This evening, the uh, EU will uh, announce it, it, its uh, bureaucratic response to um, uh, very real and practical issues. Uh, I'm not sure bureaucracy solves much other than to lend complexity and a deaf ear to real issues on the ground. Uh, they tend to, uh, they say they've talked to people, I suspect they've talked to people for whom uh, the protocol represents merely a change in, in the algorithm on their spreadsheet. Uh, rather than dealing with people uh, for whom this is causing a lot of uh, grief uh, in terms of of just simple day-to-day uh, -day, uh, factors. Small business I talked to last week, I was ordering some new electrics for a new kitchen, uh, and one of the guys was telling me that they'd sold a fridge to uh, a customer in England. It turned out that the fridge was faulty. When they tried to get it back, they had to fill out uh, import forms uh, and prove it wouldn't be sold to any other third country uh, or in, into the EU. It was monumentally stupid. It's a faulty fridge. It's going back to the maker. It, it, it might go to the dump faster than it would go to an EU state. And yet it was two days apparently of, of trying to fill out forms and sort out the logistics of getting this fridge back. That's a lot of time and effort for a small business. And that obviously is a cost and that cost goes back on to the other customers. It doesn't fall back on anybody else. The EU approach is very much for the few and not the many. Uh, I don't think they care about the average consumer. I don't think they care about small businesses, uh, but I'm sure they sit down with some of the big business interests uh, and they'll say, sure, it'll all be all right as long as we get what we want. So, so long as the big businesses go, the little man will be damned because I don't think the EU cares too much. Yeah, well, the EU, when it says that it's consulting with people in Northern Ireland, I mean, we've seen this you know, many times before. It, it consults with its friends and it gets the answers that it wants. So, I mean, I don't think that we can expect a, a comprehensive solution this evening, but maybe we'll... The, the fact that we're negotiating, the fact that we're talking about it, the fact that we're, you know, discussing rolling back from some of the worst features of this is at least encouraging and maybe we can get some kind of solution for the future. Well, let's hope so. And, and let's come back to it in a few weeks' time and, and see uh, how far that has gone on. No doubt it'll be closed doors and uh, whispers through uh, Tony Connolly and RTE or uh, Neil Richmond out of uh, Fine Gael. Uh, they'll be telling us what we ought to be thinking uh, uh, at that time. Yeah, <laughs> undoubtedly. Undoubtedly. All right, then. Uh, speak to you soon, Owen. Thanks, David.